Genesis chapter 14, if you have your Bible this morning, Genesis chapter 14. Abraham lived a life by faith. Abraham walked by faith. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3 that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He lived for God by walking in faith, not by sight. Um, God made promises to him about having a multitude of children before he ever had a child. God made promises to him about a land that he would inherit and that his descendants would inherit that Abraham never saw physically. Um, he never took possession of it physically. He just walked through it and claimed it as his own. And the Bible said that he was looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. Abraham walked by faith, not by sight. God said, you're righteous because... You do that. Now, <clears throat> we looked at it a few weeks ago. That doesn't mean he did that perfectly, and neither will you and I. Um, we're going we're gonna to make some flaws along the way. We're going to fail along the way. Um, we're going to hear God sometimes and not want to respond to God. And sometimes we're not going to ask God what he wants us to do. We're just going to step out there and do it ourselves and be just like Abraham when he went down to Egypt and found out that we were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we need to get back in the will of God. Abraham... His faith wasn't perfect, although you can see it progressively get stronger and stronger. And I think that all the Lord expects out of our lives is that we take him at his word concerning who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we start there, and then we do our very best to live every day of our lives um, by faith and obedience to his word. We'll fail, we'll fall, he'll forgive, we'll get back up and be made a little bit stronger along the way. And um, as we walk by faith and not by sight, we give glory to God and, um, and people are drawn um, to him. Abraham left his family. He left his friends. He left the region of the world that he was from. He left the religious heritage of his father because the book of Joshua tells us that his father was an idolater. And he walked through a land that God promised to give to his descendants. And, um, and before he ever had a son, God said, I'm going to make your seed like the sand of the sea. And I am going to use you to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. So, I, you know, we've been kind of walking through this a little bit verse by verse. And I don't, I don't foresee that continuing, probably not beyond today. I'm not, I'm not reading that far ahead. But we're probably just going to look at some highlights of Abraham's life from here on out. But I couldn't get past these first three chapters and just digging down into them a little bit. Um, but last week we saw Abraham pursuing peace. Um, there, was, there was disunity between him and his nephew Lot. Lot had been with him throughout his journey. Um, Abraham's brother had died and Lot had kind of, I guess, adopted Abraham. Um, the Bible tells us virtually nothing about Lot's spiritual life until you get to the New Testament. And then it tells us that he vexed his righteous soul with the deeds of the wicked while he lived in Sodom. Um, but there was a contention that arose. Lot and Abram, Abraham were prospering, and the, and the land got too big to carry both of their flocks, and so there arose contention between their herdsmen and then contention between them. And Abraham wanted peace. He was pursuing peace with his brother, and so he said, you take whatever you want, and I'll take whatever's left. And Lot took that prosperous land near Sodom, that land that was green and... and uh, plentiful and the cities there were prospering and uh, Abraham took what was left over and I, I told you there was a uh, a Abraham was was acting selflessly and as he did so he moved further into the will of God 
Lot was acting selfishly, and as he did so, he moved out to the fringes of the will of God and pitched his tent toward Sodom. And the picture that I tried to draw for you last week was that Abraham is a picture of a man that is living with a spiritual mindset. Lot is a picture of a man living with a carnal mindset. Um, Abraham was a saved man acting like a saved man. Lot was a saved man acting like a lost man. Now, we would not even know Lot was saved had the New Testament not told us he was a righteous man. We wouldn't know it by looking at his life. We wouldn't know it by his actions. We wouldn't know it by his attitudes. But there's a, there was an example drawn for us as this was what spiritual maturity looks like. This is what it looks like to be drawn further into the will of God. This is what it looks like to have a carnal mindset. When you have a carnal mindset, the Bible says you're at enmity with God. You're moving further away from the will of God. And that the carnal mind is death. But the spiritual mind is life and peace. And that's where Abraham was walking. Abraham was living for long-range spiritual promise. You get that? He walked, after Lot claimed the land, God said, I want you to stand right here, Abraham. And you look north and you look south and you look east and you look west. And everything that you see and everywhere that your feet walk, I'm going to give it to you. And Abraham lived for that long-term promise that God gave him that he never really claimed in his lifetime, but that God promised it to him and to his descendants forever. Lot, on the other hand, lived to inherit a short-term, fleshly, physical gratification by pitching his tent near Sodom. And when you pick up Genesis chapter 14, I'm not going to read those first 11 verses, but I'm going to give you a little bit of an exposition of, of all of chapter 14. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read and preach as I go. But I'm not going to read those first 11 verses because there's a bunch of kings mentioned there and a bunch of nations mentioned there and I'll struggle over every one of the names almost and I'm, not, I'm just not going to read it. All right? I'm not going to read those first 11 verses. It is basically a historical narrative. In fact, if, you, if you're following the timeline of Abraham and Lot and you're introduced to chapter 14, until you get to verse 12, you don't even know why this is being put in the Bible. It, it literally is a historical narrative about the very first military warfare that we ever see in the Bible. Now, that don't mean that it wasn't in there. It don't mean that it wasn't part of history. But it's the first military warfare narrative that we have in the Bible. It lists kings by name. It lists nations by name. It lists the conflict that they were involved in. And essentially what it is in those first 11 verses, it is, it is a... It is a conflict for control. Now, I'm going to just stay here for just a few minutes, but I'm not going to read those verses, but, but this bears it out. You have, you have four nations that had basically taken five nations and enslaved them or charged them taxes, and then you have those five nations ultimately after a long period of time saying we're not going to live like this anymore, and they revolt against those four nations. So you've got, you got, you've got four eastern kings... Um, that had enslaved five western kings. Those five western kings had decided they're going to revolt against that. And you got a military conflict, um, full-scale military conflict going on where these four eastern kings unite themselves together to come and stop the rebellion of those five Jordanian kings. But this is, these are kings and nations that are acting in opposition to each other in order to gain... Um, some control, or in the sense of those five, in order to escape some control. And, and I want to just pause right here for just a second, because I never really thought about this until I read this passage of Scripture and been pondering on it all week. Most, if not all, of the world's wars have been fought for the same reason. 
It is an attempt for one nation to control another nation. It is the lust of, and a lot of times it starts with the leader of the nation or a particular group of, of, lit, of political leaders in a nation <clears throat> that they want to gain control of another people group. Um, either they want to gain, either they want to gain their wealth, or they want to gain um, their power, their resources, or they just want to be in control of them. And so, when you talk about the conflict of uh, for control, it is an effort to to lord over someone else and make them do things the way that you want them to do it. Now, I'm not going to stay right here long, but I just want you to think about this. If most, if not all of the world's wars are fought because of the lust of men for more power, for more wealth, for more control over other groups of men, is that not also true in our own personal relationship with each other? I mean, if, even if you, look at, if you look at the context of marriage... A lot of the conflict in marriage comes from, I want my wife to do things my way. And if she don't do things the way I want her to do them, I'm going to try to gain some control over her. And, and make her come around to my way of thinking, even if I had to do it by force. And, and the same goes for women. In fact, the Bible says that part of the curse of sin, you look at what God said to Eve, um, is that and you have to read it in a different translation in King James because the, the you you'd have to get a strong concordance and break it down. But literally, part of the curse on Eve was is um, your your desire is going to be to control your husband, and conflict comes out of that. Um, when you look at what happens to most churches, when churches split, let me tell you what the source of of the conflict in most churches is all about is that one group of people decide that we're going to do it this way and if you're not going to do it our way then we're going to create conflict in the midst of it and we don't care if it tears the church apart in the process. It is all about me controlling you or you controlling me. All of our relationships in life ultimately I think um, boil down to for the most part I won't, go, I won't go so far as to say every conflict but I would say a vast majority of our conflicts are about us controlling Somebody else. Um, in our marriage, um, in the church. Y'all, we're, we're seeing it in our culture right now. There's a worldly mindset in our culture right now that wants to shake off every vestige of religion and belief in God. It's there. I mean, they want, the, and, and, and look, they've been winning a lot of battles. They wanted God out of school. They wanted prayer out of school. They want it now out of every public um, forum and format. They, they want the school. Listen, that, that's the conflict. It is, a, it is a matter of control, of squashing down other ideas that don't, mat, that don't match your own. And so in a very real sense, I want you to understand, I'm going to move on from this. The spiritual battles that we face are by and large battles for control. The battle that you fight in yourself is a battle for control. The flesh wants to control you. The problem with the flesh controlling you is it's going to lead you to death and destruction and ultimately to damnation. Uh, the, your flesh is doomed for damnation. It's, it's doomed for destruction. It wants to control you, though. Your spirit also, the spirit of God that lives in you, wants control. And that's who we need to be in control of our lives because His will is perfect. His ways are perfect. 
But there's a constant conflict going on within our own hearts that is a conflict for control. The spiritual battles that we face are a whole lot like the battles that we see in the world. And that is who controls our life and who controls our life's resources. Listen, I want the Lord Jesus Christ to be in control of my life and in control of my resources and control of my thoughts and control of my actions, control of my words. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. And can I tell you, that was a battle to relinquish that control to him for many, many years. And still to this day, we fight those struggles, those conflicts where we want to control our own lives, but he has to be Lord of all. Now let me say this and I'm going to move on and read some scripture. The closer you camp out to carnality, the more at risk you are of losing the spiritual battle and giving the enemy control. Remember where we left Remember where we left Lot last week? He pitched his tent towards Sodom. He pitched his tent to a place that had a reputation for wickedness. And so let me reiterate that again. The closer you camp out to the lust of your flesh, the more likely you are to lose the battle for spiritual control of your life and give it to the enemy. Now we don't even know why this story was in there until you get to verse 12. The Bible said that those kings from the east, those four against five, came and, uh, to squash that rebellion of those five um, Jordanian kings. Verse 11 said they took all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, all their food, and went their way. And verse 12 says, And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods... And departed. Now, when we left Lot last week, he was he had pitched his tent near Sodom. But now the scripture tells us in verse 12 that he had been dwelling in Sodom. He, he, he wasn't just pitching towards it anymore. He was living in the midst of it. And so Lot is now reaping the consequences of his poor choice. Lot is reaping the consequences of getting too close to carnality. Lot is reaping the consequences of not just camping out um, with a self-centered pursuit of prosperity. He's moved right on into Sodom and is now reaping the consequences of his choice. And you know what? Sodom at one time looked like a good place to live for Lot, even though it was a wicked city, he's like, um, there's prosperity there. There's wealth there. I can climb a ladder of success there. I can have this there. I don't have to worry about where my herds are grazing there. Um, I can become a man of influence. And, and, and according to what the scripture tells us, he did become a man of influence in Sodom. But what one time looked out to be a, looked like a good place to live turned into a place of captivity for him and a place of loss for him. Now, this is a warning shot for Lot. This is, this is like, you know, um, they say that, that most earthquakes, most major earthquakes are always preceded by little tremors. You get a little tremor of what's coming. Um, floods are preceded by raindrops. This is Lot's warning shot. This is, this is what it's going to cost you if you stay in Sodom. This is an opportunity, in fact, I believe, for Lot to make another choice. 
He's already suffering some, some negative consequences of his choice to live in Sodom. Listen, he gets caught up in an international conflict that had a direct effect on him and his family and his possessions. This is, I mean, we got a world, we got a, we got a major international event going on, and little old Lot, who was just dwelling in tents, traveling through the land, is now caught up in the middle of the captivity and loss of a city that he had chose to dwell in. So, so let me say this. You can't live near sin without getting caught up in the downfall of it. You can't live near sin. You can't camp out near Sodom. You can't make your house in Sodom and not get caught up in the consequences and the downfall of the sin that's associated with it. Now, the Bible, doesn't, the Bible never makes an accusation against Lot being immoral. It never, in fact, it says that he vexed his righteous soul every day with the deeds of the wicked. He had the right belief system in his heart, but he was camping out as close to carnality as he could. He was living as close to the flesh as he could. He is trying to walk the line between righteousness and wickedness. And when the downfall of sin came upon that city, Lot got caught up in the midst of it. I'm sure you tell your kids all the time it matters the company you keep. You've heard the old saying, if you sleep with dogs, you're going to get fleas. You don't have to be a dog yourself. You can get, be guilty by association. You can be guilty by your, 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 your closeness to that. Lot got carried away. Lost everything he had. Got caught up in the downfall of Sodom. And the sad part to me is that this was a wake-up call for Lot that he said no to. Because when, when Abraham rescued him, which we'll read about in just a minute, Lot went right back to Sodom and, and, and lived in it again. And we don't see the destruction of Sodom until I think it's over in chapter 19. Um, this, was, this was Lot's opportunity to get out, and he didn't get out. And, 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 and so listen to me. The Bible says that God disciplines those that He loves. In fact, here, the Scripture says if you can live in sin and not experience the discipline of God, then you're not a child of God. Here's what the Bible says God is doing with the wicked today. He's treasuring up His wrath for the day of judgment. God's not punishing the wicked today. Their, wicked, their, their punishment is being postponed until the day of judgment. That's what the Bible says. But if you're a child of God and you're living in wickedness, He's going to whip you for it. He's going to chasten you for it. And, and it may start with just a stern voice. How many have ever heard the stern voice of God say, don't go there, don't do that, don't say that, don't be that? I've heard that voice of conviction. Listen, one of the truest signs that you're a child of God is when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit telling you not to do something. Um, when you feel the Holy Spirit of God um, chastening you internally, making you feel godly sorrow that leads you to a place of repentance. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit is living in you. If you ain't hearing that voice, you better check. Examine yourself. See whether you end the faith. Because the Holy Spirit taking up residence in a Christian's life ain't going to let you live near Sodom or in Sodom without warning you. That you're getting out there on the line where you lose your reputation. You lose your testimony. You can lose your family. You can lose everything that you've worked for. 
by staying too close to that flesh, too in love with the things of the world. Now, in, in that letter to the churches of Revelation, God said, those that I love, I rebuke and chasten. The rebuke is that stern voice. The rebuke is that convicting power of the Holy Spirit. That chastening is a whipping. And I can show you in Scripture that the Apostle Paul said, some of you are sick and some of you are weak and some of you are dying because God's whipping you. Read Hebrews chapter 12. The chastening of the Lord is not pleasant, but it's beneficial for those that are exercised by it. And that don't mean... The kind of exercise, like my daddy used to give me exercise and he was whipping me, I'd run around in a circle trying to get away from it. When, when the Bible says that you've been exercised by discipline, it means that you recognize what it's for and you quit what you're doing in order that you might escape the chastening hand of God. So this is, this is Lot's wake-up call. This is Lot's opportunity to see that living in Sodom is not a good idea. Not for me and not my family. In fact, when you, when you see this narrative play itself out, Lot didn't know what this, Lot didn't, Lot had no clue whether this was permanent or not. He just knew he was caught up in a situation and in a circumstance right now that he didn't choose, but that was a consequence of his choice. Abraham's still living in peace. Uh, he's still a wanderer through the desert claiming the promises of God. Lot's taking up residence in a wicked city and reaping the consequences of that city's wickedness because of more wicked people coming and trying to take control over it. He didn't know if it was permanent or not. What he did know is that he wound up bound up a long way from home. And can I tell you this? You keep living close to sin, you're going to wound up bound up a long way from where you want to be. If you've ever been a prodigal son, you know what I'm talking about. Prodigal son left his daddy's house and said, I'm going to go waste my inheritance on riotous living. And he did just that. And he found himself, he wound up bound up in a pig pen and said, if I could eat what the pigs left over, I'd be satisfied. He went home broken and ashamed. Well, if the story had ended there lots, this wouldn't have just been a this wouldn't just have been a warning shot. This would have been the end consequence. We know that the end consequence was that Sodom was ultimately destroyed. But if you look at Genesis chapter 14, we get into the heart of what's going on in this text in those next few verses. There came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. By the way, just a note on that. That's the first time the word Hebrew is used in the Bible. And so it, it just made me curious. And so I looked it up. Because Abraham didn't have a family yet. You know, the Jews to this day are called Hebrews. Um, they're called that later on in the book of Genesis before, the, before they had ever formed a nation. Um, but he's called a Hebrew here. Well, I looked it up, and the nearest I can tell is that Seth, who was that son that God gave Adam and Eve, that godly lineage, had a great-grandson named Eber, and that Hebrew is a derivative of that word Eber, and so that people that were descendants of them were primarily a nomadic people who traveled around with their herds and flocks like Abraham, and they became known as Hebrews, part of that region. And so not only the Israelite nation early on was perceived as 
Hebrews, but all the descendants of Eber. But, but, look, but continue to read with me. Um, they told Abraham, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre. That's the last place we saw him too, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. Those are some of the Amorites that lived. And they were confederate with Abram. That is, they were friendly with him. They were united with him. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, now the scripture calls him his brother. It called him his brother in chapter 13. It's his nephew. They're kindred spirits in that they're both believers, one spiritual and the other carnal. But when Abraham, when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. So, Abram is displaying... I call it, and by the way, this is all alliterated. When, it, when alliteration is easy, I use it. When it ain't easy, I don't use it. <laughs> he displayed, the, he, he displayed the, com, uh, the courage of compassion. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. The Bible, doesn't never, the Bible it never tells us that Abraham is a warrior. He's a shepherd. He's a nomad. He's a tent dweller. In fact, these people that he has, that he trained are people that lived in his household, that were born into his household, 318 that he trained and armed and took with him. Whether or not he had any help from, from, from um, those two Amorites, Eshcol and his brother Anur, they were, in, they were confederate, they were joined to him. He may have had help with them, I don't know, but Abraham took himself and 318 of his own men that he trained in his house. And even though he was not a warrior, his brother was in trouble. And he went after. Y'all remember how Abraham, you remember how Lot treated Abraham in chapter 13? I'm going to take the best and give you the worst. I'm going to take the fertile land and give you the barren land. If you're going to let me have what I want, I'm going to take all of the watered plain of Jordan. And you can stay in the high desert country. In spite of how Lot treated Abraham, when Lot got carried away in that captivity, Abraham ran after him to rescue him. That's compassion and that's courage. I looked at a map and did a little bit of research. Abraham went better than 140 miles by foot or camel or donkey or whatever they was riding. 140 miles to go and rescue his erring brother from the consequences of his choice. Now, here's what that tells me. He wasn't glad that Lot was getting a whipping. He wasn't, you know what he could have said? Lot, you got what you deserve, buddy. Good luck getting back home. You lost everything you had because you camped out in Sodom. You done lost your testimony, you lost your goods, you lost your family, you bound up in captivity. Lot, I hate to tell you, but I told you so. I hate to tell you, but you got what you deserved. But that ain't the path that Abraham took. Abraham simply heard, my brother has been taken captive, and I'm going to rescue him. 
So what does that say to us? I hate to tell you this. I hate to even admit this. But sometimes when I have a brother or sister that's done me wrong and hard times come upon them, I thought you got what you deserved. And then maybe y'all ain't never thought that way. And I'm telling you, I'm being honest with you, that ain't a spiritual mindset. That's a carnal fleshly mindset. When we see a brother or sister taken captive by sin and even caught up in the consequences of that, we ought to be moved by compassion enough to take courageous action on their behalf. That's what Jesus did for us. Y'all know what? We were, we were sold into sin. and we, we, we were reaping the consequences of our sinfulness. Uh, that that we inherited and that that we chose. And Jesus, in courageous compassion, came to rescue us. Abraham went after Lot and rescued him. And I would suggest to you that it was because he loved him and could not let him continue to suffer the consequences without making an effort to redeem him. Now, y'all know Lot went right back into Sodom. You also know the end of that story. When God was about to destroy Sodom, what was Abraham doing? Begging for God to be merciful. You know probably the only reason Lot got out there alive? Because Abraham was praying for him. Galatians chapter 6. If any man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The second verse, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Lot was caught up in the consequences of his own actions, but that didn't change Abraham's compassion for him, nor the courage that it took for him to go and rescue him from four armies of the enemy. I could go a whole lot of places right now. The information is really so skewed and messed up right now. I don't know what happened in Texas this week other than a bunch of innocent people lost their lives. But this is what I heard, that some of the parents were begging them to let them run into that school. And, for, and it probably would have likely meant death. But let me ask you this question. Would you run into a burden, burning building to save your child? I would. If, if I knew my, somebody in my family, a brother, a sister, a child, a wife, a spouse, if I knew somebody was burning to death in a building, I'd, I'll go in and die with them, but I won't let them die without trying to rescue them. I think the scripture calls us to be that compassionate for each other. In fact, if you read the end of the book of Jude, which is, which is about people departing from the faith and going greedily after reward. And in fact, Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned in that same context. The, the end of that little bitty book of Jude says that we are to run and do what we can to save who we can, snatching them even from the fire. 
hating even the garment that has been spotted by the flesh. So the Bible calls us to be courageous, to be compassionately courageous. You know what that means sometimes? It means that you see a brother or sister that are caught up in sin. And you know that one day there's going to be a whipping for that sin, a consequence for that sin, a hard time that comes as a result of that sin. And, 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 and what we ought to do before they ever get caught up in that consequence is go and talk to them, go tell them, go warn them, go encourage them, go exhort them, go reprove them, go rebuke them. That's what compassion does. Sin's always going to have negative consequences. And the closer people camp out to it, the, the, the more likely those consequences are going to be. If we have the compassion of Christ, we're going to go and warn them. The last part of this text, and this to me is the heart of the whole chapter, and probably the reason that it's recorded in the Scripture for us. When Abraham goes home, a hero with the spoils of victory. Verse 17, The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chertolomer. That's just one of them names I wasn't going to try to pronounce. And, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shiva, which is the king's dale. I understand that that is probably the Kidron Valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. Now this next sentence is a little bit confusing. And he gave him tithes of all. And Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes of all. Of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. And that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So the, the heart of the story is that Abraham comes home with the spoils of the victory, all the goods and all the people that had been taken captive. And now here's the question that I think is being answered or asked and answered in this text. Who gets credit for the victory? Who gets credit for the conquest? Y'all know this, the biggest temptations in our life will usually come after the greatest victories. Because that's when we have a tendency to get lifted up. That's when we have a tendency to be prideful. That's when we have a tendency to smote ourselves on the chest and say, look what we did. Look who we are. And I mean, you can walk back through the scripture and see this. Y'all remember Elijah, Mount Carmel, that was a, man. Elijah came on the scene, announced three years of drought. Three years of drought, he challenged the prophets of Baal 
to that to that contest on Mount Carmel, he went from the highest of highs where he got this great humongous victory over the enemy, and the next place you see him, he's laying under a juniper tree open that he could die because Jezebel's after him. You remember a couple of things that Elijah said in the process of all of that? I'm the only one. I'm the only one standing for you, God. I'm the only one doing what you want me to do. Y'all don't think Elijah had a little bit of pride? Look what I did. Look who I am. Why am I suffering this? And the Lord basically finally, when he got... And he had fed him and taken care of him. He said, look, Elijah, you ain't the only one. He's 7,000. Hadn't bowed her knee to Baal. Sometimes the biggest victories that we have will be followed by the greatest temptations. Jesus, after he was baptized, um, went for 40 days fasting from food and water. And right after that, the Bible says he was hungry. And Satan came to tempt him. Now I think there's a, there's a visual that is being given to us here. There, Abraham is in the middle of a divine test. What are you going to do with your success? What are you going to do with your fame? Is, is, is your victory going to make your pride swell or is it going to humble you? Who's going to get the glory for what just happened? Now, there are two kings that met Abraham. One king represents the world and its wickedness. That's Sodom. That's the king of Sodom. That king represents the world and its wickedness. The other king represents God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now, if you look at the text real close, the king of Solomon ran out to meet him first. But the king of Salem spoke first. Now, Salem means peace. Jerusalem, Jeru means city. Salem is peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Now, Jerusalem wasn't a Jewish city yet, but this man came from Jerusalem, and the Bible called him a king of peace. He came from the city of peace. He came from Jerusalem. His name is also called Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. This is one of the most mysterious characters in all of God's word. Because he ain't mentioned before this. He's mentioned one time after this in Psalm chapter 110. And then he turns up again in Hebrews chapter 5, quoting Psalm chapter 110. And Hebrews chapter 7 gives us a little bit of a biography about his life. And what it says about him is that he was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And that there's no genealogy of where he came from. His mama is not mentioned. His daddy is not mentioned. The beginning of his life is not mentioned. And the end of his life is not mentioned. But he is a priest forever.
Now, either this man is a picture and type of Jesus or he is Jesus pre-incarnate. Now, what I believe personally is that is that Christ showed up in the Old Testament at times. Most of the time he's called the angel of the Lord. The reason I don't believe it's just another angel is because he received worship. The angels of the Lord won't receive worship because the, the, any man that's ever bowed down before an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord would say, get up, I'm not, you worship the one that I'm worshiping. I'm not worthy of your worship. But this angel of the Lord in other places received men's worship. And it was obvious that there was something about him that caused men to worship. And I believe it was a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate. Y'all do know Jesus didn't get his start in Bethlehem. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always has been, he always will be. And so I personally believe that Melchizedek wasn't just a picture of Christ. I believe he was pre-incarnate Christ. And he meets Adam, uh, Abraham rather, coming back in victory from this battle. And he blesses him. And says, uh, he, he not only blesses him, but he says, Blessed are you of the Most High God who hath given you the victory. He comes right out the gate and said, Abraham, you're a blessed man. And the reason that you've been blessed is because God has blessed you. And the victory that you've just won, you won because God gave you the victory. And Abraham took the spoils of that victory and handed him a tenth of it. Y'all want to talk about the tithe? All these people saying the tithe ain't in the New Testament. The tithe's in the law. The tithe. Listen, the Abraham's tithing before the law ever came about. The law ain't been wrote. The, the law hadn't been written on tablets of stone. There ain't any Levitical priesthood to take care of at this point in time, which is what the tithe was primarily given. Take care of the Levites because they don't have an inheritance in the earth. You tithe and we'll take care of the Levites, and there'll be meat in the house for those needy people. That, but but listen, none of that's true right now. This king of righteousness, this king of Jerusalem who the Bible also says is a priest of the Most High God. Now I don't know but one other man that fulfills the role of priest and king and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest that is passed into heaven for us. He's also the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But Melchizedek comes out and says, you're blessed because the Most High God has blessed you. Abraham agreed with that by giving him a tithe of everything that he had won in victory. It was an act of agreement. It was an act of worship. And then the king of Sodom steps up. A representative of the world and its wickedness. Not the kingdom and its righteousness, but the world and its wickedness. And here's what he says. Abraham, you can have all the spoils. You can have, you can have all the gold. You can have all the silver. You can have all the food. You can have all, you can, you can have all the spoils. Just give me the people. Y'all know what that reminds me of? When Jesus came out of that temptation in the wilderness, Satan said, you hungry? Make these stones bread. Took him up on the pinnacle of the temple and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you all this if you'll bow down and worship me. You know what essentially Satan Offered Jesus 
You can have all the spoils of this world. Just give me the people. I'll give you the planet back. Just give me the people in it. Now y'all do know that Satan's offering Jesus something that's already going to be his. <laughs> you do know Satan's offering Jesus a world that belongs to him from the beginning and that'll belong to him in the end. And you know that Abraham's already got all this. He don't have to give anybody anything. He, he's, he's tied his tenth to, to, to Christ. Everything else is in his possessions. He don't owe anybody anything. And King of Sodom says, give me the spoils. Or give me the people and you can have the spoils. You know what Abraham said? I don't need nothing that you got to give me. I don't want it to ever be said that you made me rich. I don't want you to have any control over me. Y'all, sometimes, sometimes when, um, when people make a huge contribution to something that, along with that contribution, one reason I say we don't want, you know what, we got an offer from the government, and I ain't listen to me, I ain't, some churches did it, and I ain't knocking them for it, but I, don't, I didn't feel, I didn't even tell you about it. But the banker called and said, listen, the federal government's got some loan money for you. It basically, it's supposed to be like a personnel protection payout. We can, get, we can get your church a chunk of money. And you probably won't ever have to pay it back. And he's kind of shocked when I said, no, thank you. The Lord takes care of us. We, we don't need anything that the government's got to give because when the government gives it, it's always got strings attached to it. I didn't have to ask you. <laughs> I said, no, thank you. God's faithful. He'll provide. Abraham said, I don't need your spoils. I don't need you to give me anything because the God I serve can give me everything. Let me, let me just point you. This king of Jerusalem, this king of righteousness' name, Melchizedek, brought to Abraham bread and wine and Abraham done had all kind of spoils but he brought to him bread and wine you know what Jesus brought to us this is my body which has been broken for you this is my blood that was shed for you the kingdom has been entrusted to you. I'm not going to drink or eat of it again until I eat it new with you in the kingdom. 
Listen, we got to walk to that promise faithfully, heroically, but humbly. Any time in our life a victory is won. And, and listen, we have to act in faith. And, and, and sometimes we have to exhibit great courage. But if we win the battle at the end of the day, you know who won the battle? Christ won the battle. He blessed us to win the battle. And all the glory goes to Him, not to us. I think the world needs more of those humble heroes, don't you? I don't have to give an invitation to this. <clears throat> I really don't. We celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow. There's a picture on the back of your bulletin. I, every time I see that picture, I get emotional. A little boy accepting the flag of his Marine Corps dad that died in Iraq. That's a real funeral. That wasn't a stage picture. A photographer grabbed that, it and it's become iconic. Memorial Day is a day that we not honor our veterans. We appreciate you, but your day's coming in November. Memorial Day is a day that we honor those who gave the ultimate price to secure our freedoms. And this is what I know about our military men. In fact, I've seen several of them post the last few days. They approach this day with a great deal of humility and a great deal of respect for their brothers in arms that didn't make it through the battle. In fact, I've I seen one of them say, please don't wish me happy Memorial Day. Because I left the blood of my brothers on foreign soil. And for whatever reason, God, by His grace, brought me home. We need to honor them. Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this. And a man would lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus turned around and laid down his life. For us. You know why I'm free from sin? You know why I don't have a penalty paid? Because he paid it for me. You know why the power of sin is broken in our lives? Because he put his spirit in us to break it. You know how our bodies is going to be resurrected from the grave and glorified and inherit that land that God has promised us? Because the same spirit that brought Jesus from the dead lives in us. And is the down payment, the tithe, <laughs> on the inheritance that God's going to give to us. Greatest hero of all time. Took upon the form of a servant, became obedient even unto death. That's an humble hero. Let's come stand together as our musicians come. Lord, I... I really don't ever give an invitation anyway. That's the responsibility of your Holy Spirit. All you've called me to do is to preach the word, and I've tried to do that this morning, and I trust that your word goes 
where you send it and it does what you send it to do. There may be some folks in here this morning that are camped out right on the edge of carnality. They believe all the right things and and their heart is righteous because they've trusted in Jesus, but right now they're being led by their flesh more than led by your spirit. There's a battle going on for who's going to be in control of their life, and right now they're losing that battle. I pray this morning that you'd awaken their conscience to the consequences that might result. It might cost them their testimony. It might cost them even the loss of their family, which is horrific. Even if their life is spared, even if they escape and get another opportunity to choose, they may never regain what they lose living in Sodom. So I pray you'd reclaim them this morning. Call them home. Like a prodigal son in the pig pen, I pray that they would come to themselves this morning and turn their heart towards home. Lord, I pray we'd have the spirit of Abraham living in us that when we see brothers who have been caught up in their consequences of their sin, or just caught up in sin. Help us to go do everything in our power to rescue them. And any time and every time we ever succeed, may we turn and give you the glory, the praise and the honor for working in us and for working through us. Have your way in this invitation. God, if there's, a, if there's one here this morning that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, I, I pray that even though the message has not been evangelistic in that sense, you, um, you convict them of sin. Convince them of righteousness and of judgment. There's a man that laid down their life to save each one of us. I pray they'd come to him today before it's too late. Just have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.